Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a snowy, wintry day here in south-central British Columbia. In today's program, we continue our series on the conservation of humanity, exploring the Wuhan flu COVID-19 pandemic, and specifically the mRNA gene therapy injections. We'll take a deep dive in the most up-to-date science on the subject and learn about the multitude of potential risks that these injections pose to the population at large. Today, we are very fortunate to host a brilliant research scientist and one of the very first individuals to raise serious concerns about the novel mRNA vaccines prior to their public release. Joining us for this episode, which is a landmark 100th episode of the Martin's Critical Review, is Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, PhD. Dr. Lyons-Weiler earned his PhD at the University of Nevada, Reno in Ecology, Evolution, and Conservation Biology. In 2000, he was the recipient of the Alfred P. Sloan Postdoctoral Award in Computational Molecular Biology at Pennsylvania State University. His present research program is focused on improving healthcare via the development of treatment efficacy and risk biomarkers, optimizing clinical interventions after adverse events, and understanding the neurological and immunological basis of vaccine injuries. In 2014, Dr. Lyons-Weiler founded the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge to conduct biomedical and translational research in the public interest, and IPAC-EDU, LLC, to bring foundational educational opportunities to the public. Presently, he is the CEO, Director, and Chief Scientist at IPAC. In honor of our mutual friend and associate, Ted Kuntz, I'd like to dedicate this important episode to Ted's late son, Joshua, and to IPAC's Joshua Kuntz Research Fellowship. Dr. Lyons, it's a tremendous honor to be able to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's an honor to be with you today. I wish it was under better circumstances, but here we are. Here we are, doing uh, doing the good work. So uh, let's begin today, if we may, with your prophetic warning that you delivered during your speech at the Pennsylvania Medical Conference back in October 20th of 2020. Uh, for those listeners who may have missed it, uh, perhaps you can summarize the salient issues you raised then and how those prophetic statements have become an unfortunate reality today. Right. So first of all, I also want to say thank you for Ted, for um, his family, for lending the name Joshua to the IPAC Research Fellowship. But we're currently funding Dr. Jessica Rose, and her name will no doubt come up a couple of times in this conversation. The good people of Canada through Vaccine Choice Canada, primary funding source for that. Uh, they've been very generous. So thank you all. Uh, well, when I, this, when I was in Harrisburg, um, it's funny because the, the speech that I gave in Harrisburg didn't go viral until about two or three months after I gave the speech. And this was at a time when clinical trials were being done, the early clinical trials were being done. And I was actually referencing the very first spate of trials in which 21%, according to the vaccine manufacturers, I believe I was citing Moderna, reported 21% serious adverse events, what they called serious adverse events. And so, what I realized through my own research and uh, published research from other scientists over the decades was that uh, when you create vaccines for coronaviruses, there is a phenomenon known as disease enhancement. And for years, the public was not aware of this. Most of the medical community was not aware of this because it was given the euphemism of um, immune enhancement. Disease enhancement is the capacity of a vaccine to make the pathogen more deadly. So the when you were injected against a particular pathogen, you create antibodies against that pathogen. There's a couple of ways that uh, disease enhancement can occur. Um, disease enhancement 
can occur through a process, all of it falls under the rubric of pathogenic priming. <clears throat> Disease enhancement can occur uh, because the virus that you're targeting has actually evolved away from the vaccine. And so the antibodies that you're producing are inexact. Uh, it can occur through autoimmunity. And in the case of COVID-19, my analysis that was peer reviewed and published and validated by Harvard Medical School, I showed that uh, experimentally uh, lab, I, I showed that the SARS-CoV-2 viral proteins included parts in their proteins. They have parts that look like human proteins. And so when you inject it into human being, that those antibodies are created against those proteins, which uh, these are all, I'm only talking about parts that do cause an immune reaction, right? It, the, the, then you can have autoimmunity that occurs after vaccination, and then it can be triggered again by subsequent infection. One third, about one third of the proteins in, in the virus itself actually had had what are called immunogenetic epitopes or parts that can, can induce an immune response that um, if it causes autoimmunity, could target and do damage to the immune system itself. And then um, there's antibody-dependent disease enhancement in which the, there's an interaction between the viral protein and the antibody, a physical one that allows easier entry into the cell. So all of this falls under the umbrella of pathogenic priming. And, and my concern in, in, uh, in Harrisburg was, yes, we have a problem with vaccinating against coronaviruses. It's been known for years. It was known for SARS. It was known for MERS. It was known for respiratory syncytial virus. And this is why they shut down the vaccine for RSV. RSV killed children. Um, they shut down the vaccine development for SARS and MERS because they didn't need it because the, the, the disease went away. But more importantly, they also couldn't pursue it because they couldn't get funding because the animals died when they vaccinated against SARS with the SARS virus uh, vaccine. And when they vaccinated against the animals, they vaccinated the animals against the MERS virus vaccine and then infected the animals shortly thereafter, they ended up getting sick. And they end up, ended up getting sick in ways that were not like the respiratory illness. They had systemic inflammation. It would hit their, their liver, it would hit their pancreas, it would hit cardiovascular, mice and, uh, and, and ferrets and rats, they would die from things that were unrelated to the original pneumonia. So that was one concern. Another concern that I also said in Harrisburg, which made it go viral, was everybody is saying that there's no false positives to the PCR tests. And so when you start quarantining people, because they, if you do mass testing with a test that has high false positive rates, you end up locking down individuals at the time, it was before the lockdown, you end up locking down individuals, one person at a time, and I realized that that would scale up with mass testing, to shutting down business after business after business in your community for a short period of time. It's, it's a form of work loss and that would have an impact on the economy and that they needed to do a better job in the tests. And so it went viral in part because I used the, the uh, analogy that when you do mass testing and you're dropping false positives across the economies of countries that do, do PCR testing, it's like dropping a bomb off in your economy. You drop a bomb after bomb after bomb. And it, I, I said that 
public health is doing a better job than any terrorist probably possibly could, you know beyond their wildest dreams to harm our economy then then what did they do they ended up doing a lockdown on top of it in part driven by false positives and i've been proven out in terms of you call them prophetic by the way there's a spiritual connotation to that i want people to know i'm, I'm a secular scientist but thank you for that but but you know in april i could see written in the proteins that there was going to be pathogenic priming of one and i published this in april of 2020 think about that so i was out in seattle washington i had traveled to across the state at some scientific conferences unrelated to vaccines i ended up picking up a virus and i got really sick in february of january beginning of february and i was sick for about six weeks <laughs> and i had the worst respiratory illness i ever had and i'm convinced that i had COVID. i don't know because there was no testing available but it wasn't my sickness that woke me up to it it was when we were in the seattle airport and we were flying back to pittsburgh i saw chinese nationals there getting on the plane and they had masks on and one of them was crumpled on the floor and bawling his eyes out. And it was a dramatic kind of guttural thing. Well, what's happening in China? So I looked up what was happening in China. That's why I got the heads up to, oh, wait a minute, there's SARS-CoV-2. They called it MCOV uh, 2019 at the time. In fact, some of my original articles, I refer to it as MCOV. But <clears throat> the novel coronavirus that was coming out, and I, I am an evolutionary biologist and I know bioinformatics, so I could very easily get under the hood of the virus very quickly as soon as they published the sequence. And, you know, said was, listen, there are pathogenic epitopes. The parts of the proteins that are in the virus are pathogenic, just the proteins themselves. And that included the spike protein. And everything that I've said is borne out. I'm sorry to say this, but I, I look back and I see, you know, okay, the, the thrombocytopenia, the clotting, you know, I see the... Um, the cardiovascular, the myocarditis and pericarditis, if you look at the individual proteins, I pointed out to them that those proteins as potential autoimmune targets. And this is actually probably, hopefully a gift from COVID that tells us, hey, wait a minute, you can't just take a bunch of viral proteins, put it in the human body and say you're doing public health. You know, because because if those virus viral proteins themselves are pathogenic, then we have a problem. So one of the aspects of pathogenic priming is, hey, you just set yourself up on the next exposure, you're going to have a problem. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing higher rates of serious adverse events uh, in second dose and um, or second exposure to the virus, uh, viral proteins. Um, and, and we're seeing as time goes on that they're getting worse and worse and worse. So more and more of the population is becoming sensitized to this problem. Um, <laughs> When, when I look back at it and I look at the proteins, I, I just get sad. I, I get sad because I put it out there and of course everyone has limited distribution just by chance, right? So I have about 26 papers, probably 20, probably about 30 papers now have cited my original study. And that's not a lot. That's, that's, I'm proud of that. I'm very proud of that. But, but, but it's not a lot. I mean, thousands of scientists to wake up and say, hey, wait a minute. The, the disease causing agents within viruses and not just the virus it's the protein so if we start talking about how dangerous the proteins are instead of the vaccine risk or virus risk we zero in on the danger of the proteins and their capacity to either induce autoimmunity or to mess up our immune system through interference through antibody dependent enhancement uh, or other mechanisms there's three or four other mechanisms i haven't mentioned um, then we can start 
designing vaccines, if we still want to, after this debacle, um, that exclude those epitopes. And that was my point entirely. My, my point entirely, even though I don't say so in the paper, it was obvious. Listen, here's some ways that this thing's going to cause problems. And so, Vojtani and, and a team at Harvard and Boston Medical, they took my predictions and they tried to falsify them. They said, we're going to test this and see if these parts of these proteins that Dr. Lanswell was saying could cause diseases. Do they have the capacity? They have an assay, a laboratory assay, where they can say, will they cause autoimmunity in the body? And they ran that assay and point by point by point by point, they said, listen, we and they were so impressed with it that they actually did their own analysis and added other proteins from the mitochondrion, which I didn't think to include that in my analysis. So sadly, I was correct about that. Now, sadly, I was also correct about the testing. I was on a, a restaurant case uh, where a restaurant was shut down in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the state epidemiologist actually gave written testimonies to the judge, and she said that there are no false positives in the SARS, in, 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 in the PCR test for coronavirus. Well, I had already submitted my written testimony where I cited four studies that showed the false positives. And the way you think about testing for, car, for SARS-CoV-2 and for coronavirus, um, for COVID, is we, we know that the current infection rate on any given day is about 1.6%. That's, that's you know, the maximum to some places. So if we're looking at that low of an infection rate, then you actually have to have a test that, that has basically no false positives. You can't have a 1% rate or 2% rate or 3% rate because every time that you add another percentage, then you get another segment that is people that are staying home, they're misdiagnosed or whatever it is. And so um, there's a reason why we don't do CT scans, for instance. There are CT scans that are used for cancer, but they're used for cancer after you have gone through a series of other diagnostic steps that basically either places you out of the risk category or into the risk category. The differential diagnosis and pathology and the biomarkers is my research specialty. So I could see what was going to happen when they were saying more testing, more testing, more te test everyone. But, you know, you're gonna end up with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of false positives, and that's gonna be very damaging. Well, um, when the judge looked at my written testimony and then looked at her written testimony, he couldn't have it in a court case in Pennsylvania where the state epidemiologist didn't know that there were, in fact, false positives in this test. And so he actually asked us to give oral testimony only. And in that oral testimony, the only thing that the state, the Commonwealth did was attack my credibility. They only attacked my, they attacked my resume, not my points. And so, um, you know, that, that was a little bit annoying because the message is the more you test with these tests that have Singhang Lee, Dr. Singhang Lee says it could be 91% false positive rate. The more you test, the more damage you're doing to your ability to fight coronavirus because you're confusing the entire system with these false positives. You're also probably causing a lot of morbidity and mortality in patients because you're telling people, hey, you tested positive for COVID. Well, if they have a respiratory illness, they're going to think that it's COVID. They're not going to think that maybe it's influenza. Maybe I should be treated for influenza. They're not going to think maybe it's respiratory syncytial virus or certain bacterial pneumonia. What if you have a fungal illness? So the worst part about this, and I call this Fauci medicine, is when you test positive, you're told to go home and get sick for 10 days. Wait for 10 to 14 days. See if you get sick enough for the emergency room. And that turns every case of COVID that tests positive with PCR, a true case, into a viral incubator. 
These people go home and they fill their bodies up with virus. And that's where mutations occur and that's where new variants come from. But then, that, that's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is they get so seriously sick. Come back if you're seriously ill. They're not given the option of early treatment. And again, I think it was March, I started doing simulations of what we really need to do to handle a virus like this that I modeled. Not like the Imperial College model, I just use standard models. And I said, okay, let's say we have a vaccine that's this percent effective, 30%, 40% effective. Right, that's pretty good. I might be it's a tool and toolkit. We would then have to add early treatment. And then I realized we also have to add social distancing. So I I, I was a you know, I'm I'm a champion for if the goal was to shut this down. Now, why did I do that early back in March? Well, that's because the Chinese had us believing that there was a 20% mortality in everybody with diabetes and 54% of Americans had metabolic disorder. So I thought 20% to 54% is a huge number of Americans that we're going to have to bury. That's exactly why I did what I did. I was scared. And that the, the degree that I was scared, I tra I, I, I'm trained to be rational in science. I'm trained to use logic and reason first. So I simply went through my protocols and I said, this is what I think is happening now. Over time, we saw that it was 10 times as bad as the flu. And now I realize with early treatment, it can be very, very mild. Very, very low risk if you're less than 60 years old of dying. And your, your risk of dying from influenza is greater if you're less than 60. And it's practically nothing if you're less than 60 and you get early treatment, right? So we really have to calm down uh, I think coast to coast across all the countries in Western, Western world. The message at the time was don't blow up society after other causes of death. Like, I was very cognizant of, of, of deaths of despair, of, of suicide. I was very worried about people not being able to feed their families because they can't work, right? Very concerned about poverty and the whole big systems thing. Well, what medicine does is they say, well, that's not our responsibility. They externalize the cost, right? Big medicine just externalize the cost to all society. This is what we need so we, we don't implode. We don't have too many people with COVID showing up. So you all are going to have to take care of that problem. And um, all these problems fell on the American public and the Canadian public across the world. And now, unfortunately, very unfortunately, I just published an analysis on my Substack. It's called Popular Rationalism. And I encourage everyone to go there, get a free subscription. I'm never going to charge anything. You can pay something if you want, and I appreciate that. But I took the data uh, a couple of months ago, from a couple of months ago, at vaccine uptake and the new cases across all the countries that I could get the data for. The new cases on for a given day is positively correlated with the vaccine uptake in Western countries. The more vaccinated the population is, the more new cases we're having. And this is true at a variety of levels. We're seeing it in LA now, and there's prep within districts of LA, they don't know why it's happening. It's a mystery why it's happening. And the reality is that um, one of the ways to, to get pathogenic priming is that, that your immune system is so focused on dealing with the vaccine that you get the vaccine and then you get infected it's a, it's a miss. It's, it's not an exact fit. Your antibodies are busy attacking the vaccine spike protein, which has evolved away from, you know, the wild type virus has evolved, evolved away from the vaccine types. It's called um, um, original antigenic sin. It has been known since the 1950s. 
that we can actually end up with a more serious case of COVID and larger numbers of cases of COVID if your immune system thinks you have a virus infecting your heart, for instance. You've got the spike protein in the heart connecting cardiomyocytes and breaking down the integrity of the wall between the cardiomyocytes, uh, the heart cells that should never be broken. And you end up with inflammation. Those cells die, they spill their guts out and the body that sends in infiltrating cells to clean up the debris, right? So when it happens, the body thinks it's under attack with a, a, a virus that's a, a attacking the heart and it produces antibodies against those proteins but viral proteins that, that new virus has are very different and you end up with not being not being as able to, to fight it off. So, right, and so if we could shut down iremia in people with early aggressive treatment, then we could reduce the rate of transmission. If we could do it with early aggressive treatment, we can reduce the rate of hospitalization, we can reduce, you know, death rate, and, and people won't be so afraid of it. it. You know, imagine if you have, like, a treatment that's going to reduce mortality to you know, one in a million. Yeah, that would yeah. Be great. Well, I asked Pierre Pierre Corey, the uh, uh, one of the leaders and the leading world's leading experts in early treatment of COVID, how many cases of the five million that the five million deaths could have been prevented? And his estimate is eighty five percent. Yeah, yeah. Through treatment with ivermectin, treatment with hydroxychloroquine, treatment with other. Drugs. I mean, just vitamin D three has profound effect, and this the peer reviewed literature is massive now. It's not. It's thousands and thousands of studies show that early aggressive treatment, and some of them are observational studies, some of them are small, but it's consilience of the evidence and the consistency of the evidence. So, what are we going to do? Continue to push and mandate vaccines that actually increase the risk of COVID in people? Or we're finally going to grow up as a Western civilization and say, hey, you know what, we should do what the Chinese have done. From the beginning, the Chinese had traditional Chinese medicine that they knew would help against respiratory viruses. Wisdom that's thousands and 4,000 year old wisdom. This is not the first time, this is not their first rodeo with coronavirus over there. So yeah. unless we open up all the stop gate, gates and say, hey, wait a minute, public health regulation be damned Doctors need to practice medicine. Their, their first job is to protect their patients' lives, not protect the bottom line of their hospital. And certainly, in, in the case of, of any rational basis or ethical basis, physicians, ethical physicians will treat their patients, period. <clears throat> if you don't do that, you're an unethical physician. I'm sorry to have to, if you're the first time hearing about me or anything like that. I'm a loving guy. I've dedicated my life to biomedical research. I've spent years at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, where I was a full faculty member, Department of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh, developing biomarkers. My mom died of breast cancer when I was very young, so I'm very passionate about making sure that doctors have the best tools in their hands. And so when I hear guys like Dr. You know, Peter McAuliffe say, we can do much better. Well, he is a leader. He is a de facto leader in treatment. It's not Fauci. I don't look to Fauci for anything useful whatsoever. I can't possibly imagine anything useful coming out of that man's mouth. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. And, and you know, the, the admonishment of the MD class is specifically important here in Canada, where, you know, we're at a 98 percent uh, rate of the doctors more concerned about their mortgage payments and their country club payments 
than they are treating their patients. And, you know, we've, we have a number of examples of uh, doctors being sanctioned by their colleges for, for uh, using ivermectin. I mean, there are no early treatments here in Canada. And end of story. I mean, there's uh, family members are smuggling ivermectin into hospitals. Uh, patients are, you know, responding immediately as they do. The doctors in, in attendance immediately is asking questions of what the hell happened here. They, you know, they have the nursing staff search the room. Oh, we found ivermectin in your sock. No more visitation. And then, of course, the patient, you know, goes dramatically the other direction as soon as the, the medication's withdrawn. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I've said it and several of my guests have now said it that these people are murderers, you know, right from the MDs to the public health agents uh, that are responsible for this. And, you know, there, if you are a physician who has, you know, uh, undertaken the Hippocratic Oath, you are no longer discharging your duties in the way you should. And, you know, they, they're abdicating their responsibility to patients and to the population at large. And, and it's, it's truly upsetting. Um, so I just wanted to unpack a couple things that you, you'd said there. Um, so the, the immunogenic proteins that are contained within the, the coronavirus and I guess what's going into the, the mRNA uh, vaccines, these are these, these proteins that you refer to. These are those unsafe epitopes within that uh, genetic structure. Is that correct? Right. So every protein has multiple different parts to it. It's like your car. Right? Your car has a tire and a door and a so every protein to have the shape that it has and have its functions, they have different domains. Some of those domains cause an immune reaction and some don't. It's through the process of evolution, our system kind of chipping away at the, at, the, at the viral world and at the bacterial world saying, you can't have that because we can recognize that. And the virus saying, well, I've got a new one. How about this? And try to escape our immune system, right? So that their, their goal is survival, our goal is survival, is an arms race, it's a molecular arms race. And so those epitopes are, specific, the word epitope means that it's immunogenic or that it will cause an immune reaction, which is what you want. If you're infected, you get an immune reaction. In the SARS-CoV-2 virus, there's about 55 different epitopes that help you be immune the next time you see it. <coughs> mRNA vaccines, there's one spike protein, five epitopes. So you have one-tenth fewer chances of mounting good response to begin with. And then because everyone's focused, everyone's immune system is hyper-focused on the, on the spike protein, and the spike protein is the only one that vaccinated people are developing antibodies to, they have shifted the evolutionary landscape for all of us, and now we're dealing with a virus that has a different spike protein. That different spike protein is responsive to the vaccine. Now notice I didn't say that that Delta variant. That spike protein on the wild virus virus is no longer responsive to the vaccine. And we see that every of the, uh, the vaccines that we have in the United States, Moderna, Pfizer, uh, Johnson & Johnson, all of them are less than 50% efficacious now if you put them patients against the, I call the Delta variant, against the current variants. Less than 50% is lower than the amount that's necessary to have an emergency authorization, and yet the FDA has not taken action to revoke the emergency authorization. They know this. They know that we know this. It's a staring contest. What are they going to do? When are they going to wake up to the fact that they're actually killing people to the point that the doctors are murderers? Um, in, in the United States, I don't know how medicine is, is compensated in 
Canada, this will bring us into the socialism, democracy, you know, socialism, capitalism spectrum, political economics, and I want to go there with you, but the fact is, for every case that was diagnosed, our hospitals were compensated to the tune of like $20,000 for every case, not every death. That's a perverse incentive. So how many of these deaths are we were false positive PCR or recoded by physicians and staff that realized that they could save their hospital. Remember in that days we were locked down for three months and we starved allopathic of any revenue. You couldn't get any any elective medicine at all for the standard vaccines. Even even pediatric units were shut down. So now you have this massive, massive industry starved for a full financial quarter of any revenue. And then the government says, oh, by the way, more testing. And go, by the way, every case that you get referred to us, we're going to pump trillions of dollars into it's a bailout, right? So biases, the perverse incentives and biases are in place. And I know specifically of individuals that would get COVID-19 diagnosis who never tested positive, never had a respiratory symptom at all. Mm-hmm. And I've heard, of course, hundreds of reports of patients that were in the hospital given a COVID-19 diagnosis. Some of them ended up dying of COVID because they were in the hospital, you know, co- sharing a room with someone that had COVID. Yeah. Right? yeah. This is the disaster that Western medicine is. This is the, the, the disaster that has to change. And that's why I celebrate doctors like Pierre Corey. I celebrate doctors like the doctor out down in Houston. Um, Dr. Mary, who uh, is uh, at Houston, Medi- uh, she has a private practice, but she was at, at Houston Methodist from time to time. She would go in and if she had the privileges to practice medicine and treat patients just on the outside chance, it's a courtesy that she happens to be a Houston um, Methodist and there's a patient that needs her care. She's covered if she provides life-saving care. She, so she had treated 2,000 patients with ivermectin, 30% of them with ivermectin. She treated 2,000 patients with COVID. None of them were hospitalized. She started telling people on social media, nothing shut her down and said, you're not gonna be able to practice medicine here. We're gonna revoke your privileges. So she held a press conference and she said, I, I haven't sent any of my patients to Methodist. So I, I don't care that they shut me down. What I care about is that they're hurting my reputation. I care about is that they targeted me, try to make an example of me. She is an example. I call an ethical phys- physician. She yeah. is practicing ethical medicine by actually caring for her patients in real time and saving lives. She said, who does? She said, no hospitalizations. It's a miracle what she's doing compared to what's happening. COVID. And, and then she asked for, she said, I have a list of questions for, for, for uh, I have a list of questions for Houston Methodist. Like, how come we don't know how many of your patients that are now COVID are actually vaccinated? How many have breakthrough cases, right? You gotta share all your data. So she had a list of questions for them and she's not taking it laying down. So she's very brave and uh, setting an example for other doctors. And what's happening is that the ethical physicians that are practicing ethical medicine are leaving allopathy, they're leaving big medicine, they're going 
co-ops. They're going out and they're creating their own private practices. And this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. This is a wonderful thing because people will be able to find healthcare options that they never knew existed. That's in the United States. I don't know what it's like there in Canada. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Lines, can I get you to bring the mic a little closer to you? Because there's a little bit of, uh, uh, yeah, there's a bit, bit of a change in, in volume as you move back and forth. Um, so, yeah, and, and in Canada here, there has been a movement which has uh, been led by some of the um, uh, nurses that have been fired for not taking the vax, which is the Ezra Wellness Movement, uh, which is, again, patient-focused. And uh, Ted is actually involved as an advisor. And it's it's bringing that um, patient-focused uh, wellness. And we're moving away from healthcare because healthcare has you know, really just been sickness treatment. And so we, we don't want people to be sick. We want to enter into a contract with people uh, to develop their wellness. You know, and that probably begins, uh, you know, the, the first prescription is you need to be drinking you know, a gallon of water a day. You need to be, you know, what, 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 let's journal what you're eating over the next two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. And, and that's going to have a profound difference in people's lives. And uh, that's how that's how we're going to create a healthy population, uh, not through the inv you know invention of new drugs. And you know, obviously, there's a place for medication, uh, but the, the I think the number one take home message from COVID that most people aren't understanding is that you are responsible for your health. You cannot outsource your health and wellness to somebody else, and a prescription pad isn't going to save your life. And you think, and if you're in that modality, you will enjoy sickness instead of health. And that's that's just you know the simple the simple basis. So you know, there, there is a grassroots movement starting here um there are some naturopaths joining uh there's you know, the odd doctor that's endorsing uh but this is very much um antithetical to their allopathic model and they're they're being very very slow to respond and as you suggested with the hospitals in the u.s um many of the doctors here in canada now uh, are doing you know telemedicine their five to seven minute segments where they bill the government for you know full uh, office visit with that they're making double or triple the amount of money they made previously uh, two and three physicians are billing for the same uh, patient in hospital and really doing nothing and uh, so yeah we, we're in a, we're in a crisis here and, and I you know again the silver lining of this whole situation may be this shift away from that old Rockefeller um, allopathic model into something new and much more holistic. Um, so I did want to ask you, uh, I, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Li Menyang, uh, the CCP defector, who, of course, has a very... Um, I think a well-researched um, origin story of this virus. Uh, are you familiar with her research, and, and do you believe what she's saying that this is a bioengineered weapon that came out of uh, Wuhan Virology Institute uh, together with funding from uh, your pal uh, Flip Flop Fauci? Well, the funding is there's no question that the funding was there. So fun, the, we have the grant proposal, right? So there's absolutely no doubt that EcoHealth Alliance was funded by NAID, and, and the, the grant proposal read as follows, we are going to take various types of SARS viruses, SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV viruses, and we're going to modify them to see if we can make them better able to infect, you know, human cell lines. And the, the first defense that our regulatory and funding agencies tried to use was, well, that's not really gain-of-function research because we define gain-of-function research as you know, it has to, in virulence of the, of, of the infectivity has to reach a certain level. It has to reach two log increase, okay, uh, from the baseline. And um, there's a little bit of a scuffle between EcoHealth Alliance and the NIAID 
And it turned out that the NIAID and the NIH allowed Equal Health Alliance to define their own terms on what this gain of function research would, would qualify as under semantic de uh, definition. So it's not a standard definition. It's just something Equal Health Alliance made up. Gain of function research, up until Fauci was caught lying about it, it was widely understood and there was no controversy. There was no discussion outside of that uh, email trail years ago uh, about what gain of function actually was. And the analogy that I like to use is, let's say I'm baking a cake. Say, well, I'm baking a cake, but it's, I'm not really baking a cake if I burn it based on the outcome, right? I burnt it, so I wasn't really baking a cake. Yes, you were baking a cake. You went through all the steps and everything. So you had the potential to uh, bring about a more lethal virus, and that was your goal. Your goal of well, these actions, these behaviors of the scientists in the lab was to bring about a more lethal virus. So there's no doubt about the funding. In terms of uh, Dr. Deanning's, uh, uh, um, what she's done is she did a collection of all of the evidence that many individual people had put out previously. I looked at everything she put out originally. And, and you know, I, I basically said early on, listen, this, I, I was pretty sure that this was from a laboratory based on a specific piece of evidence that turned out to be an unstable part of the evidence. And I say unstable because I tried to replicate it a month later. And I, using the same data from the same database, and it appears that maybe the database was changed uh, at NCBI. But nevertheless, we know that they were doing the type of research that could bring this about. And I'll tell you this story. Ralph Barrick at UNC downloaded a sequence in 2008 that the Chinese had published in 2005. And they brought that virus to life in the lab from electronic information only. They replicated, they created a, a genome. This genome that Ralph Baer created was not very good at infecting feline cell lines, so they added something to it, and there, then it could infect fetal, uh, fetal, feline cell lines. So they were doing this, where they were actually doing genetic modification, hands on the sequence. No doubt, our guys were doing it, their guys were doing it. She learned it, she probably did the experiments in Ralph's lab at the time. So, you know, Dr. Xi, I mean. So, um, in terms of my opinion about her evidence, I see the evidence all over the place. I see, I see it, you know, so many people have come forward. There was, some of the evidence is sociological evidence. There was a graduate student or a master's degree scientist that was working at Wuhan Institute for Virology. And her face was on the webpage and then it mysteriously disappeared. And her colleagues, before the clamp the clampdown took place, was saying she got very sick. And then mm -hmm. her name and her and her face disappeared. I don't remember her name, uh, but the evidence is out there. So, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese military, as I understand it, Nanjing Command in particular, had SARS-CoV-2-like sequences, right? Wuhan Institute of Virology had SARS-CoV-2-like sequences. When you analyze the data, it was Nanjing Military Command that submitted one of the sequences to the database. They just didn't know that they had it. What they were doing is they were publishing sequences that they thought, they thought were SARS. Right, so they literally just collected a bunch of bats from the wild. They were sampling the, they're taking an anal swab of each bat, and they were growing the virus up if they could. And then they'd select some, and they had no idea what they're doing. They're just hunting and pecking. We'll try this one. We'll try that one. Well, they did serial passage in the lab, according to Eco Health Alliance's grant proposal, and uh, I'm sure that they succeeded in making things that could transmit better. 
this particular virus, all the evidence has been destroyed. All the animals are gone. All the cell lines are gone. The computers are, you know, seized by the Chinese military, I'm sure. And the, 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 the lockdown, the clampdown on speech by the CCP, it was so complete that even scientists that were criticizing people like me that were saying that we thought it was from the lab back in, you know, April 2020, um, don't even criticize them. Just shut up about it. They, they told us that every scientist in, in China, just be totally locked down. Don't, don't say a word. So we will never probably find the smoking gun, but now we have the grant proposal. So the grant proposal is a smoking gun. What we need are some whistleblowers. We need some defectors. We need a hard drive that got smuggled out of China, something like that that really knows it. But if scientists are listening, go look at, my, uh, at the IPAC website and find our report on this. HKU33 is the sequence that could provide the backbone for this virus. Everybody was focused on the rat G3, whatever. HKU33 is the most SARS-CoV-2-like sequence that we have. So the testimony that Anthony Fauci gave to the Senate, when he said it's molecularly impossible. No, 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 sorry. Ralph Barrick has HKU33. Okay, so there's it's our guys, it's their guys. There's no point in pointing fingers or fingers on blame. What it is, smoke and mirrors. And uh, I, I applaud her for coming forward. It's a very brave thing to do. Yes, yeah, very much so. And she is a brilliant, uh, brilliant research scientist. And you know, she really has gone through and at uh, really risk to herself and her family to to present this information. So uh, I did have a conversation with some Chinese nationals here in in Canada that provided a bit of a political background to the to the story. And I guess there are different factions within the CCP and they were feeling that, you know, she's part of one faction that's more, more moderate and don't uh, support what uh, Chairman Xi is doing in terms of his very aggressive stance. And so this faction is trying to, trying to discredit and sort of dismantle the, the, the hierarchy. And so it's, it's much more complicated than I think that we really understand uh, as to what's going on there. But you know, I, 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 I could tell she had a particular political agenda. There's, that's one thing I will say that I have no political agenda, right? <clears throat> so, but, but, but we can talk about this for a little bit because I, you know, I, I want to talk with about with you guys about a, a professor from um, Holbrook and Mary College in, in New York that came over to Ontario. It was December 2019. You've got to see her lecture. She actually is arguing that because of guys like Jeff Bezos and guys like Elon Musk and guys like um, Mark Zuckerberg, since they figured out in this game of capitalism how to make a huge amount of money, that we have a choice between neo-feudalism um, or communism. And she's very, very plain about this. <clears throat> very, I'm sure very polite, but very interested um, people in attendance at that college, uh, university in Ontario, I forget the name where she spoke, but they applauded. So that might not be a shock to somebody in Canada that there's, you know, pro-communist people in the world, but this person was 100% serious. What she's missing, and she's written books on this, and what she tried to do is she tried to say that, you know, the new communism is not the old Stalin kind of, you know, scary kind of communism. It's we'll, we'll all warm up together. And she kept talking about these people in the hinterlands 
these lost souls that are going towards the right. They don't have to go to the right, she says. When she, she said hinterlands like four times in one sentence. It was crazy. Um, these lost souls wandering out there. In, let's talk about people in the suburbs. What hinterlands are there, right? So and people in rural areas, and they're lost, and they have to be saved by the communist ideals. We have to get the communist ideals into these people in the rural areas and then bring them all to make them live in the cities where we can finally have that one last struggle on how we're going to live communally. That's a pretty good synopsis of her message. And, you know, the answer I've heard from people that I've talked with about this is, no, we're more careful about choosing our friends than that. Thank you. You know, we know how to make a living. We know how to take care of our children. We know how to worship in the, in the churches and synagogues and mosques that we choose to. And we really don't need some ideologue to tell us that we have to live shoulder to shoulder in boxes in condensed cities next to a rail car commuting every day maybe to our work or just plugging in on the internet and that's their ideal i mean this is klaus this is klaus's great you know reset ideal where we're all going to be little cubicle dwellers like rats in a cage and we're just going to plug to whatever we're going to plug into and be happy and and own nothing you forgot that part so i, I think i think you know there there is a a major calamity occurring in this country and it's it's not a new process uh socialism has been sold here for a couple of decades uh as a solution um it has resulted in a very lazy population an entitled population uh you know certainly the trade union movement had value um in in bringing the working class people up out of that you know po you know the balance of poverty um that got out of control in this country where, you know, a, a pulp mill, for instance, would have six workers per job that they actually needed. Uh, our productivity in this country has, has declined dramatically. And, um, of course, you know, we have uh, the bastard son of Fidel Castro running the show at the moment. Uh, so, you know, we have a, an ideologue from the top down. Uh, many of the cabinet members and, and people of influence are young global leader graduates from Klaus Schwab's program. Uh, you know, which all amounts to very, very scary uh, political underpinnings. Um, the most recent federal election that we had here um, back in October, which I'm sure you uh, caught wind of, uh, we had a very polarizing um, electoral map upon the completion. So from, uh, you know, just north of you there, Manitoba East is communist, um, you know, Leninist loving socialists. Uh, to the Coast Mountain Range in British Columbia, it's pretty much ubiquitously conservative country, which are, you know, capitalistic minded people who reject communism, they believe in the rule of law, they believe in entrepreneurship. And then again, on the coast, for whatever reason, I think that's largely because of a, an ethnic balance there where the, the political parties are running, you know, the correct ethnic uh, mix uh, candidate for that jurisdiction. Um, and then again, you know, we're, we're back to communism, which, which is very strange, because where I grew up on the on on the coast uh, are, are some of the most um, uh, valuable postal codes in terms of real estate values in Canada. And they were always traditionally conservative ridings, and they've all switched to liberal, uh, which makes no sense to me. Um, and so we, this, this woke mentality that, that has emerged and this belief that the government knows better than you do uh, and this, which is really, it's not, it's not a new, it's not a neo-Leninism or neo-communism, it's technocracy. And, you know, the, the model for technocracy is the CCP and 
and for whatever reason, you know, again, our our communist uh, dictator, bastard son, prime minister has publicly admitted that he admires the, the the system in China. Now, you know, when you have your leader saying that, I mean, to me, that those are treasonous words. And, you know, from everything there that falls from there, you know, within that political party to appease your master, you are going to be echoing similar sentiments. And so, you know, we're, we're in a very, very precarious situation here. And as we chatted briefly before we got on, um, the COVID trance and the COVID hypnosis in this country are alarming. Um, you know, the people wear masks and young people, you know, the 20 something crowd are wearing masks outside on a sunny day. Uh, inside, you know, there, there is a mask mandate, although there are, um, you know, abilities for uh, uh, mask exemptions based on medical purposes. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's a 1% um, number of people that are resisting uh, this nonsense. And, and unfortunately, I think the the balance, and again, if we go back to the federal election, uh, 5% voted for the People's Party of Canada, which is, you know, uh, uh, more conservative, believing in the rule of law, anti-communism, uh, messaging, anti-COVID uh, 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 hysteria messaging. And they got about, they got about 5.6% of the vote it was 900,000 Canadians that voted for them. And the mainstream media immediately were running hit pieces like who are these Canadians? They're right wing extremists, they're white supremacists. Um, you know, these are dangerous. This is a dangerous uh, nationalistic move away from, you know, the essentially away from the Great Reset. Uh, you know, and our, our CBC, the Communist Broadcasting Corporation, is uh, 100% paid for by the government, and it's a propaganda engine. And so there's a large segment of the Canadian population, particularly the boomers, uh, that have trusted this news organization for their entire lives. And if if the CBC says it, that's what it is. And of course, you know, the CBC is, is you know, it's, it might as well be CNN. I mean, it's, it's complete trash. Um, and, you know, again, when, when, when we, we talked about uh, Peter McCullough and, of course, his colleague, uh, Dr. Harvey Reich, um, developed their early outpatient treatment protocols. And, um, you know, when you talk to a medical professional in this country, uh, they completely dismiss that. And, you know, here you have a, you know, uh, let's say potentially a country doctor who's in a town of 5,000 who, you know, arrogantly, oh, that's, you know, that's all nonsense. It's like, well, listen, your education level and your expertise is so diminutive in comparison to these these individuals. Um, you know, how dare you not look at that research? You're you're a charlatan. You're not a scientist. You're not a doctor. You're a hoax. You're a fraud. You're a quack. You know, and so and you know, for them to be throwing those uh, labels at uh, you know, there's a, there are a number of, of of ethical physicians, as you call them here, that are that are standing up. And you know, you, if you type in their name into Google, I mean, it's just a, it's it's three pages of hit pieces and you know, phony doctor quack and on and it goes. It's 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 shocking. Um, and so, you know, I guess a question for you, you know, what do you, what do you think is going on in these physicians' minds? And, and you know, given this life-saving research that's, you know, I think that uh, that outpatient treatment, um, that large study, which I think is about 40 authors, I mean, it's been uh, cited 41,000 times now or something. I mean, how can you, as a physician, continue to discharge your duties and ignore that type of evidence? Right. So like you mentioned it earlier, their bottom line, their income depends on them being good little followers, right? So they're not paid to think, they're paid to execute. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I interviewed Peter early 
on. He saw my predictions and was enamored. And Pierre told me that, you know, I was a really early voice influencing his thinking too, that we have to have early treatments because otherwise we're just going to have, you know, it's about how much COVID do you want circulating? That's the question. Don't try to argue right versus long of morality. Just say, listen, will the treatments, look at the date, look at the science that shows that the treatments actually reduce viremia, which will by definition reduce case caseload and by definition reduce transmission. And if they won't look at it under those terms, then you'll never convince them any other way than passing legislation that mandates that they provide treatment. We have lawsuits in the United States. We have cases where patients are on the ventilators, the father is sick, about to die. The doctor wins the lawsuit. It's the same Dr. Mary uh, in, in Houston. And he's about to die. The judge says, yes, you can treat. So they send a nurse over to treat. She stopped at the door. No, there's a stay on that order. This is a person's life. He's on, on, off, on the ventilator. And then he's off the ventilator. He's back on the ventilator. I mean, this is this is yeah. not medicine. This is a battle yeah. where the number of deaths from COVID give them more virtue signaling. They give yeah. them a, a more importance, more relevance. They have to show that they're relevant. And um, that lecture that I talked about, what's happening in the big picture here? That lecture I talked about was given by Dr. Jody Dean. She's faculty at Hobart and William College, and uh, she's also author of the book The Communist Horizon which I point out in my article on Substack and on popular rationalism that she offered, she proffered to the audience in a very capitalist manner that copies were available for sale in the <laughs> lobby. Okay, yeah. so the, 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 the absolute lie of communism is what's driving this and why is it being tolerated now in your country and apparently it's getting a toehold in the United States. Uh, Pharmaceutical companies, they don't care. They just, they found that it's easier to deal with totalitarian governments. So yeah. guess what you're in for? We're gonna get billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. They're gonna mandate vaccine after vaccine after vaccine. There's 172 vaccines that are in the queue at the CDC waiting to be approved for, for use in kids. And there's you know half of that again for adults that are coming. And, and so we look at the trillions and trillion dollar market it's not even a market. They fixed the market. There's no competition among vaccine manufacturers. All these approvals by the CDC are done by a committee called ASIP, the American um, Committee on Immunization Practices. And every single member in ASIP, except for the military guy, has a direct financial conflict of interest. Direct right, financial conflict of interest with the vaccine manufacturers. That's regulatory capture. That means hang your flag upside down. That means that our government is under attack by a foreign entity. That foreign entity happens to be the pharma cartel. It's not, you know, it's not communist China that are pushing this, but I'm far less afraid of Jeff Bezos than some plastic artificial form of communism that's supposed to make me happy, like you said, by owning nothing. And she's presenting this as a warm and fuzzy version of communists that we can warm up to. You know, she put up a meme had class snuggle, a kitty yeah, cat yeah. with class snuggle. Like, but but right next to that was a soldier. It was a Lego soldier. So what she's doing is that's propaganda, right? And when you propagandize a population, you go, look at, I'm warm and fuzzy, but just remember I have talons over here too. But it's a Lego, so you don't even think about it. You don't even the brain doesn't even process that unless you're looking for it, unless you process it. So. The message of the neo, and I will call them neo-communists because this, we can call it whatever we want. 
the neo-communists are they're trying the soft sell but at the end of the day um, the people that need saving are the youth the, the, the youth that are falling for this, the youth that think that masking is virtue signaling, it's not. Submission to public health authority is not a virtue. No, public health no. authority was given, was kicked way, way back by a judge in the Fifth Circuit who said, the Fifth Circuit said that the, that the rule in the United States that you have to go to work, if you're, going, if you're going to go to work, you have to be vaccinated or you have to be tested and masked. He said that public health authority answers to the states. In the United States, I just had this epiphany last week. We don't have a single constitution in the United States. The communists, pharmaceuticalists, whatever, the fascists, I call them fascists because they're bundling, you know, corporate power with government power. They don't just have to rewrite one constitution. They have to rewrite 50 constitutions. So it's a very, very healthy thing in Canada to have geographical uh, variation very healthy in in the geopolitics in the in the political so, sociopolitics there um and and communism is neo-communism included this this plastic version of communism it's not only a lie but it's a hat trick it's it's a um, they're, they're going to revolutionize the way that you live but at the end of the day what they are here's the argument the argument is jo, jody dean's argument is as follows because Bezos and these guys have gained the system, you're facing a future where you're only going to be you're only going to be able to work for people who earn more money than you. Like that's new, right? Your only the only job you're going to be able to have is to work for people who earn more money than you. Okay, but if you come over to communism, everybody will get the same amount of money, and everything's going to be same, same, equal, equal, equal. And this is really you know, not how a thriving society can flourish because there is variation in all of us. There's very, there's unique variation in all of us. The individual spark of creativity, the individual spark of entrepreneurship, the individual, you know. And so my message to the youth is, you might, don't, don't listen to this live because if you don't start, listen, you will regret this. <laughs> my message to the will drastically regret this when you're 40 and 50 years old you will regret this like nothing you've ever regretted in your life because you will realize that the 20 year old you should have been saving money accumulating some reserve of money in the bank or in bitcoin or in gold or something because hard times do fall people they do befall people and those hard times it's not going to be the communist governments are not there for their people in hard times. They're simply not there. They leave them out. And the other thing I want to point out is, let me describe communism as an economic model. I'm in charge of producing rice in my province in communist China. And I have to make a certain quota. If I don't make a certain quota of getting the rice farmers and the rice paddies to produce enough rice, I'm accused of murder because someone somewhere in china died of starvation because i didn't get my workers to work hard enough so what do i do i put little plastic pellets that look like rice and the weight of my rice and i ship that out and i get away with it for years this is actually what happened you're shot you are shot you did not give it a trial there's no jury there's no jury your peers there's no judge who has your interest whatsoever you are dead 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 because they what they do is they do these long distance connections 
of logic that are just a particular logic pathway that they've constructed and they say, you killed this person over here, died of starvation because you don't produce enough rice in your province. That's forced labor. My country went to war to defeat slavery, to, to shut down slavery, the North versus the South. We killed each other over this. And now we have pharmaceutical companies and, 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 and neo-fascists, neo-communists, whatever, like Fauci telling us that we have to make our bodies into a factory for spike protein for the state. That's slavery. I learned that from a Canadian. Her name's Diane Duchette. You should have her on if you haven't already. She's so passionate and so wise. I also learned it in a second setting by uh, a great American named Kevin Jenkins. Kevin Jenkins traveled coast to coast. He's an African-American guy that went around a bunch of white cowboys from the, from the West on a global, t on, a, on, a, on, a, on a national tour. And they try to say that, you know, we're anti-Semite, vaccine risk aware people are anti-Semite or we're African, you know, we're racist or sexist or try to throw all this crap. Yeah. At I really don't care what color your skin is. I just want you to be able to use your body the way you want to use it. I don't want some government telling you that, you know what, there's somebody dying in Florida. So you need to produce this particular protein so we can harvest it from you. We'll ship it down to Florida and save their lives. And if you don't let us do this, you're killing your, you're killing that person. So we're going to shoot. That's communism. And I, 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 the plea to the Canadian youth is help save America, all of us, Central America, North America, right? Help save all of North America. I don't know if we could reach South America. I think they're a foregone conclusion, actually. Uh, Brazil, Brazil looks pretty good under the leadership of Bolsonaro, um, but many uh, many of the jurisdictions. You know, I have friends in Costa Rica that uh, fled this regime, and now they've been uh, you know mandatory vax mandates implemented there. Uh, Colombia seems to be okay, but I, I think the problem with South America is they have it's twofold. One, they have heavy Catholic guilt, and they have about a grade nine education uh, on average if they're lucky. And between those two, they're very easy easily manipulated into the fear model. Uh, you know walking around in Bogota in, in, in May. And of course, Bogota is 7,000 feet at four degrees north latitude, and people are wearing one and two masks outside. So, you know, the, the monkey see, monkey do, you know, where they see their, their, what they see on television from America, well, this must be what we do to stay safe. I mean, the, the ultraviolet light down there and the, and the intensity, I mean, any, any viruses that are floating around in the air are, are gone. You know, it's, it's, it's also dry up there. So I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's crazy. Um, I did want to ask you, you know, so we sort of touched base on these, these early, uh, treatments, early outpatient treatments. And obviously these are, you know, we're talking about hydroxychloroquine and, and um, ivermectin, both which are off patent, both which are dirt cheap and really afford not much in terms of profits other than to generic uh, manufacturers that are stamping them out and packaging them. Um, now we see this uh, Milan and Avapir coming out, which uh, is far less effective than either one of those treatments. Um, I think the U.S. government spent a billion three uh, investing and in developing it with Merck. Uh, the product cost is $17.43, and I think their treatment five-day treatment course is $713 or something. It's a 40x markup. I mean, is that really, you know, as you've eloquently stated, I mean, it seems like the, the hierarchy of the government has been captured by the pharma cartel. I mean, is a lot of what we're seeing from the dictates of public health simply a means in which to put new drugs into the, into the hopper here and, and again, I mean, a lot of this is taxpayer funded money. Certainly the vaccine program is, you know, it, this isn't, oh, come and get your free vaccine. Well, it's cost us trillions of dollars now 
Um, and, you know, really, I think for both of our nations, uh, our national debt by the time this is over will exceed our GDP. And, uh, you know, the, the again, you know, the, the plea to the youth, the youth have a very, very difficult future ahead of them. Every day that this goes on and more and more money is spent in, in a poor fashion uh, is going to be deleterious to their future. Um, so I just let, let you comment on that. And then I've got another another question for you on, on the, the communism. Sure. So going backwards on your points there, um, every dollar that's spent on COVID-19 right now is is the, the dollar of, of comes from the from the um, wallet of kids that are less than 25 years old. Every single one of them, because the government can't be spending this money and sending our government sending out, you know, these these stimulus checks. They can't be right. They can't be spending my money, I'm 54 years old, right? So my money's in the bank and I'm going to have a fairly fixed income for the rest of my life. And it's going to be pretty, it's there. Uh, but Malnupiravir, you mentioned a country doctor who didn't know anything. I would like to see a conversation where a patient says, all right, you think that, you you know, the, the ivermectin stuff, I've, here's a hundred studies on ivermectin. Show me one peer-reviewed study on molnupiravir. Just one. There isn't any because molnupiravir went through, sailed through FDA on the basis of a press release from Merck, and that press release wasn't even from the full data from the study. It was based on it was from interim data on the study. So the level of evidence for molnupiravir is very, very low. It is it is horribly, horribly conflicted. The FDA did this, and the FDA eventually will be held accountable by by. The factions, I hate to call them factions, but the, by the public, the, the United States of America will hold the FDA accountable um, for these decisions. Um, what, what we see in Molnupiravir is an attempt to put a more profitable option forward instead of putting the most efficacious and safest option forward. And, and that was the focus of my book cures versus profits. I published this in 2015. Um, I did an article on Malnupiravir on my Substack, Popular Rationalism. I keep mentioning that. that. That thing's taking off. I've been writing about two articles a day for the past two months, putting out there everything that I'm seeing, everything that I know. And it's blatantly obvious that the regulatory agencies, the FDA, the CDC, and the funding agency, the NIH, do not have the public health in mind when they're doing, making their decisions. They have no regard for public health. They are among the most dangerous entities that we can have in a society at this point in time because they're answering to the profitability of corporations. And it might seem on one hand, how well, wait a minute, you just were railing against communism. Now you're anti-corporatism. Yes, I am anti-corporatism. I am very much an against anti-corporatism because we had a government by the people, for the people, of the people, not for the corporations. We had a government where our FDA was produced specifically to safeguard us against charlatans that were putting cheap food substitutes into food to increase Right, the, the weight of the food and make more money. Well, now we have cheap substitutes for good medicine and the FDA is rubber stamping it. So we've come full circle 
And that's why I created Plan B. Plan B is a, a way that we can transition from a centralized authority in public health, and as you would call it, approaches to wellness, health and wellness, decentralize it. So I want to disband the NIH, I want to disband the FDA, and I want to disband the CDC. Now, this is a, this is a dream of a corporatist because, oh, we're not going to be regulated. Well, you're not going to be regulated directly because there's no phone call that you can make and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we've got this product, we want to get it on the market. What can you do for me? What we're going to do is we're going to create a distributed network of research entities that all they do is they find out through their own research what's making Americans sick and what's killing Americans, period. And they report that to the Senate committees. The Senate committees then inform the Senate Intelligence Committee with their reports. The Senate Intelligence Committee goes to the President of the United States and says, this is what's happening in the world today. The President of the United States has no say over this. It's a Senate project. The President of the United States, no one should ever, ever, ever again run a presidential campaign in the United States on whether they're pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, pro-molnupiravir, anti-prolivir. It's, it's, this is a ridiculous way to run politics and is damaging and destroying science. So we need about 80 research entities distributed across the United States who answer to a specific Senate committee that is untouchable. The, the Senate committee is untouchable. These research entities can't take money from pharma. The wives and the husbands and the spouses and children uh, can't take money from pharma. No one can be conflicted. And the reason why there's 80 is so that when one does become conflicted, because they will try to, do, they will try to capture this, it is cut off. Their people are fired. And then we choose a random zip code and we create a new one so it's a moving target it's highly distributed and they work independently and they publish and we'll figure out through their research that the number one cause of death in the united states is iatrogenic disease it's, it's disease caused by medicine and what are we going to do about that okay well that's a second question see we need to have the science that's separate from the policy if we have policy and politics driving science, then we end up with disasters like we're seeing today. So that's a serious plan. It's peer-reviewed. It's in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Practice, and Research. It's called Plan B. You can go to Twitter and look up hashtag Plan B and read the paper. Um, and, I, and I do hope that this this is taken as a serious bid. People, I've, people have laughed, literally laughed out loud when I said shut down the CDC. But it literally takes an act of Congress to shut down the CDC. That's all it takes. They, do, they don't answer just to the president of the United States. They answer to Congress for their funding. And they have abdicated their responsibility in terms of public health, public safety, and doing bona fide research. There's no research going out of the CDC on vaccine safety as far as I can tell. Zero real research. They do science-like activities. They make it look like science, but it's not science. <laughs> I like that. Science-like activities. I mean, and on that point, you know, for the record, um, do you consider that any of the vaccines that are presently in circulation to be safe or effective? Well, I, I, the older the vaccines are, the, the less effective they are. So we know that the MMR is failing completely, right? So that's why we saw mumps cases in fully vaccinated populations, right? There is a, 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 a United States uh, Navy cruiser that everybody on the ship got mumps, so they were all up, up to date on their vaccine schedule. Um, and, and these, these corporations, they don't want to let go of their, their, their contracts. So they can't just say, hey, you know what? We need to update our vaccine. The FDA was supposed to say, under law, that you have to go back to clinical trials, and they don't want to do that. So in terms of you know, over, you know, glossing statements, are they safe or effective? Uh, are, they, are they safe and effective? I consider any of them safe and effective. It, what I can say is 
that the science that's been done to tell us that vaccines don't cause autism, most of that science has never been done. You can't say vaccines don't cause autism because most vaccines haven't been tested for association with autism, even association. The, the studies that have been done on vaccines and autism mostly are over like the DPT, which is no longer around, and the MMR, and those studies were cooked study after study after study. They were low-powered studies. They weren't large enough to find an effect if it was truly there. There was one study from the Netherlands uh, that I showed mathematically in a report that they actually took patients that were vaccinated and called them unvaccinated. So I can tell you exactly the number that they moved from category to category because they left their fingerprints. They left a trail. I did a a forensic analysis on their study. So in, as a scientist, I can't say whether I think they're safe or effective or not. What I can say is that they've been cooking the numbers for so long that we don't know. Well, certainly, uh, you know, your paper with uh, Paul Thomas and uh, the Landmark Control Group study headed by uh, Greg Glazer there in California. I mean, the data is pretty convincing that the unvaccinated have better health un- outcomes than the vaccinated do. And I think it's, you know, it'd be difficult for many or any of the pharmaceutical companies to argue that they were successful in stopping polio, uh, stopping the measles. You know, the, 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 this, is, this is a bit of kind of uh, urban myths, really, that, you know, this is, a, a, again, propaganda which has been perpetuated. And if, if someone takes the time to really do the research, you know, none of these were public health victories, uh, save perhaps smallpox. And, you know, you could argue that the, the, we developed herd immunity on a global scale to that, uh, to that illness. Well, you're right. So um, Suzanne Humphreys has a great book that has all the figures that show that most of the communicable diseases in childhood uh, were on their way out anyway. And they also there's also shows that other non-vaccine targeted conditions, you know, communicable uh, infectious diseases were on their way are on their way out too without any vaccine. Do you know? And so, and CDC themselves admitted that the vaccines have way too much they get way too much credit for this that are sanitation increases sanitation this kind of thing um well but i I am compelled to inform you that 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 paper the relative incidence of office visit with dr paul thomas was retracted um you know over our protest and um i really don't want to comment too much about it because dr paul's license is on the line it was suspended five days after we published that by the medical board uh, there's a new book out by Jeremy Hammond uh, that people can look up. The name is Jeremy Hammond. You should interview Jeremy for sure. Uh, he's a great, great person. That tells the story of Dr. Paul Thomas and uh, all the details of the salacious, untrue allegations that the board uh, made about Dr. Thomas and the steps that they took. And um, yeah, it's a very, very compelling book. And uh, like I said, I don't want to get into it too much. Um, in terms of that, because it was retracted and we protested to the journal and they ignored it. They retracted it after 250,000 people read it and one reader said, yeah, but there might have been a confounder. That's literally the only yeah. reason that was retracted. Well, I, I think we, we speculated and imagined a confounder. That reader who made the complaint should be forced to produce data on their own to counter it. That's rational. That's 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 that that's discourse. That's science. Instead, you know, and the problem is it's an observational study, like all of CD's studies on autism. It's observational studies, retrospective. So you could just imagine a confounder and have a study retracted because you can think of a confounder. 
It yeah. doesn't prove that the confounder was right. And we actually responded to that concern through the review process when we first wrote the paper. But the journal got scared and, and retracted it. So um, it's... Well, I think, it's I, th I, th I think that's the point. I mean, the journal was un undoubtedly influenced from an outside body saying, you know, enough of that. Uh, you know, an RFK Jr. has also approached the CDC to uh, replicate a similar uh, trial or study where, you know, they have the data of unvaccinated versus vaccinated, release the data, do the, do the analysis. All the numbers are there. I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't be an overly expensive task either because everything's already there. So. Yeah, yeah, I disagree completely. I do not trust any data that the CDC has had in their hands this long. That's how crooked they are. So the entire <clears throat> vaccine safety database that, the, that, the, that for years people have said we need to get access to that, they've had plenty of time to anticipate what it would be to release it. I don't think it's trustworthy. I don't think we'll find any signal there. Uh, but so when I wrote that book in 2015 called Cures Versus Profits, I wrote a book, a chapter on vaccines, and that's how I became vaccine risk aware. The science that was being put out there as good science was atrociously bad science. Um, and so because CDC hid data on vaccines and autism and because I was scared that kids might, you know, fall into the trap of, of neurodevelopmental disorders, immunological disorders and so on for vaccination, I went and I read 2000 studies on autism to find out what's the evidence that's truly out there, independent of the CDC. Is there any evidence that shows that vaccines might cause autism? And I came up with a, a, a wealth of information that tells us that vaccines, especially if they include metals like thimerosal or aluminum, will cause chronic microglial activation in the brain. This is the brain thinks that it's got a, a, an infection. When the metals get into the brain, it kills cells. And those constantly dying cells constantly signal the brain go in and clean up the debris and in cleaning up the debris those microglia are not there they're not available to do other things that microglia do which is to help the the brain look, create new neurological pathways so the neurodevelopmental disorder there's a one-to-one -one relationship between aluminum and and the process that leads to microglial activation and and thimerosal as well so to me it's entirely highly plausible and i went to the national vaccine injury compensation program in the United States as an expert. And I was on about a dozen cases until one day, one of the clients, uh, a petitioner, a dad who has a kid with, with a neurodevelopmental disorder, sent me a recording and his lawyer sent me a recording of a special master, a special master in the United States is like a judge that, that decides on vaccine injury and vaccine court. And in this recording, the special master basically said, well, we've already decided that aluminum is not a problem. Okay, so that ignores about five years worth of science right there, right? Because they just ignore all, all the science I, I cited, the new science, some of which I contributed to. Um, and then he said, the, my, my, the, my, um, my, the, the client, the petitioner said, well, because you don't, you know, do you think that my, my expert witness could, could give you more, more testimony? And the special master said, well, I'm not I'll compensate Dr. Lyonsweiler to this date for his invoices for the testimony, but I'm not likely to comp compensate him in the future unless he gives me testimony that I like. <laughs> I took that as a bribe and I quit the program. Wow. I, re I retracted my uh, invoices 
And in my next expert testimony, I said, among the materials that were sent to me by the lawyer, whose name I'll leave out of this, um, included this recording by the special master. And I referred the, the lawyer and the petitioner to civil court for fraud. So we'll see where that we'll see where that goes. The case was dismissed by the special master, and that's why the vaccine court attacks me. If you go to the Wikipedia article, uh, they've put up a, an article, a hit piece about me, and that's all that's in there is about how you know I I said I said this about that, or I thought maybe the vaccine the, the, the maybe the virus is created in the lab. It's all just a hit job, um, but at least I'm famous now. I made Wikipedia. <laughs> that's good that's good so in your opinion then is the fda guilty of, of malfeasance or or worse is obvious obviously involved in illegal approvals of uh you know certainly these mrna vaccines and and other drugs well you know let's just put it this way if the fda were in china there'd be people that were being shot let's put it that way fda is directly responsible <clears throat> culpable I won't hold I won't say that they should be shot, but if they were in China, the people, the individuals at the FDA that allowed these deaths to happen, the doctors, they would all be lined up and shot by the CCP. So tying it together, if you want communism and you think COVID-19 is <laughs> your way to get it, you better run for the hills, man, because they're coming for you. Yeah, the point is, yeah. it's a good question. Are they guilty of malfeasance? So the FDA is an arm of the U.S. government and the U.S. government itself you know, is by definition, through the executive privilege in particular, never guilty of anything on the legal books. You can't prosecute the executive branch of the United States government. It can't be done. Um, but the individuals at the FDA who have not done their job correctly, they have to answer to social norms. Legal norms are one thing, but they have to actually go shopping in the future. They have to make a living somehow after they're fired from the FDA. They might not be tried in a court of law, but they certainly still have to get on with their lives and look at themselves in the mirror every day with what they've done. And it's our job to remind them, not to be cruel and not to harangue them or harass them, but it's our job to remind them. I think it's fair enough. You know, one of the protests that's happening here in the United States is to alert the schools out of all the federal money that they're going to lose the parents are showing up. If they're going to pull their kid, they show up with their, sh with their with a pair of shoes of their kids and they leave them on the doorsteps of the shoe. Uh, if the vaccine mandate comes to this school, this is the number of students you're going to lose. And the accountants at that school, <laughs> the administrators are all going to say, we're going to lose 50%, 60% of our revenue from the federal government. So how in the world can this happen? So that, that's a very peaceful protest. I think the, the reminders to these people would be, should be kind but firm it, no. the reminders to these people should be you know the, the people died people died and we don't think you should be involved in this thing anymore we don't think that you should be responsible for the well-being of a human being ever again in your, for the rest of your life no. so no. we're going to take over the medical boards and we're going to strip you of your medical degree you can do what you want. You can wash dishes for a living. You know, that, that's kind of harmless. Right? Maybe go operate in a car wash somewhere. Clean out, you know, stalls at, at a racetrack or something. But you shouldn't put your hands on another human being. And that's the kindest that we can be. Is just give them menial labor jobs. Not, not the prison. Just leave them. Let them go ahead. Live your life. But stay the 
F away from science and medicine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've got a few more questions here for you on, on the actual vaccines and how they're interacting with our populations. Um, and, and I'll start with, uh, we, we've had in our local area here, actually the, the um, hospital I was born in, Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, um, w- last week, I believe within a 24-hour period, they saw 13 stillborn deaths uh, from vaccinated women. And of course, you know, mainstream media has completely been silent on this. Uh, there was a doctor there who actually the, the RCMP or our police, National Police Service has their detachment right across from the, um, the hospital. And so there was a local doctor who actually, you know, invited the, the staff sergeant to his uh, uh, speech outside of the hospital and, and demanded uh, that somebody be held accountable for this because clearly, you know, 13 stillborns in a 24-hour period is, you, you cannot attribute that to anything else other than the vaccination status. And somebody must look into this and somebody must be accountable because now we're getting into criminality. Um, you know, what do you think is happening at a physiological level well, with these pregnancies that's causing uh, this to occur? All right, so that's that's a scientific question. But first, I want to mention that I'm editor-in-chief of a journal called Science, Public Health Policy, and the Law. And in this journal, we recently published an, 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 a reanalysis of a study by Thomas Shimabukuro. He's one of the fixers at, at uh, um, in California in Kaiser Permanente. He shows up at these ASIP meetings, and he gives presentations, and he says, look, we couldn't find any serious adverse events or deaths associated with coronavirus vaccines in our data. That's the VSD data. Two days later, the FDA issues a warning, nevertheless, on myocarditis. So the name that you're looking for is Tom Shimabakuro. Tom Shimabakuro years ago gave a presentation to ASIP. And in this presentation, he looked at Tdap vaccination. And in the Tdap vaccination safety profile, they looked at use of tetanus, uh, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis vaccination during pregnancy. And he said, we didn't, uh, he gave everything about the adverse events to the mother, but he didn't say anything about fetal demise, right? Stillborns, spontaneous abortions, stillbirths. And he was confronted by another doctor after the presentation, and he pulled out a different version of the slide presentation he had excised a slide that showed a 4,250% increase in spontaneous abortion during pregnancy, uh, during vaccination during pregnancy with Tdap. Okay, so right now we have a paper that uh, was submitted and went through peer review in my journal. And the, the authors contacted me and said, we are being skewed, our careers are being destroyed. We have to submit an erratum because we want to update our position, we want to soften it, because other studies have come out from the officials that say that there's no increased spontaneous abortion with COVID-19 vaccination. And I said, fine, here's how you do that. I gave them the instructions on how to do it, a radum, corrigendum, addendum, whatever they want to do. This is how we do it in, in rational discourse. And while they were updating the last, we went through four versions of this erratum, okay? They finally wrote to me and they said, Dr. Lyonsweiler, we have to remove this. We have to withdraw this paper right away. Mm. And the reason was not science. It was because their, their careers were being destroyed. People were going after their careers, their ability to make a living, feed their families, okay, to the ability to have a retirement, to continue to pay the mortgage. And so I, I said, 
your paper is withdrawn, no problem. I put withdrawn against the paper. It's out there on the website. And then I got this strange email from somebody uh, who nominated themselves to be the spokesperson for all science who demanded that I relabel the paper in my journal as a retraction because there was an error in the paper and that error means that it must be retracted. And uh, I, I said to this person, you know, you don't know all the facts of the situation, right? So you're taking advice under advisement. But I also told them that individuals should not be pursuing, individual scientists should not be pursuing other individual scientists' careers for saying something negative about vaccines. Because that's like some frenzied craze of uh, advocacy for vaccines, as opposed to rational science. And I let him know that the authors wasn't withdraw. It wasn't a retraction because the authors were in the middle of preparing an erratum, and they decided to go full on and do the withdrawal. Um, so hopefully, speaking <laughs> reason, using science, logic, and reason to somebody who calls themselves a scientist like that, uh, might tone them down a little bit and realize, wait a minute, yeah, I'm kind of destroying these two people's lives. And what they've done is they've said. Because the official science says that there's not a problem, there must not be a problem. And that's not how science works. There's just a handful of studies on spontaneous abortion. Some of them do show up to maybe 18% spontaneous abortion. That's the higher end of the estimate. That's higher than baseline. But even that paper says, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not real. Maybe that's just the, you know, that's the extreme. Um, what we need, that is 40 or 50 studies on this topic done by independent researchers who have no conflicts of interest and then we'll do a meta-analysis and then the meta-analysis will know, right? But you can see if they're gonna use a, a non-peer-reviewed press release to push vaccines, a molnupiravir, they've gamed the system to the point where science doesn't matter. Literally, science does not matter to public health. So, um, I do think that spontaneous abortion could, you know, it's, it's the etiology of spontaneous abortion. Uh, the problems with it are very, very straightforward. Once you start messing around with the immune system, like I said, the proteins of the virus are pathogenic. It's not just the it's not just the virus. So if spontaneous abortions can be increased by COVID nineteen infection, which we know it can be, then it's totally reasonable to say, hey, there's etiology here. It's probably involves something with the autoimmune. Uh, uh, with, with autoimmunity. And if you get autoimmunity against the placenta, you're not going to have a viable pregnancy. So no. we have better studies rather than just say, oh, it's very important, or the, the risk is worth the benefit. The benefits, the benefit outweighs the risk, doesn't answer the question, what's the spontaneous abortion rate? And so in this plan B that I'm talking about for the United States, that, that, would there be plenty of people working on that kind of problem objectively and independently with the, working with the universities and, and and they would be uh they would be able to answer that without fear of reprisal and that's what we really need yeah yeah and, and that's you know we move away from scientism and a you know kind of a religious dogmatic uh structure to to real science which you know seeks to gain knowledge not uh, force a narrative um, and then, of course, you know, the other issue we're seeing now, uh, the advent of the boosters, you know, I think they're coming uh, to both our countries. 
um, which of course is is a is a crazy policy. You know, if two have done nothing, what is a third going to do? And uh, you know, what what do we what do you suppose is going to happen here? To these vaccinated individuals, I mean, we've we've heard a number of different studies. Uh, you know, I guess Robert Malone and and Michael Yaden have really rang the alarm here in terms of you know by, by the time you have your third booster, your immune system could be completely destroyed. Uh, you know, are we going to see these massive numbers of of deaths or or you know illness amongst this vaccinated population? Well, let's go with data on that. So, if you go to Africa and you look at Africa as a continent, not on average, six percent of Africans. Uh, people who live on that continent are vaccinated and they can't find any COVID cases. So let's go to Gibraltar. Gibraltar, very fascinating. I wrote about this on Substack as well on popular rationalism. You have COVID and then you bring up vaccinations at the summertime and they stop vaccinating. And then they start increasing the vaccination again for the boosters to the point where they have 140% vaccine coverage, 140%. And they just canceled Christmas in Gibraltar because of COVID. And that happened after they started the boosters. So the people who are vaccinated who get the booster are almost certain to get COVID. Mm, It could be mild, it could be serious, it could be deadly, I don't know. We don't have the data yet to say it either way, but the diagnosis is coming. And it's going to be indescribably obvious to everyone. They won't be able to hide it. They will not, just like LA County is saying, what's going on here? We have no idea. Some areas of the county, the most that are most vaccinated have more COVID. That's what's happening, folks. So, you know, during the, there's a critical period of time where I think what's happening in terms of the etiology here, that the vaccine actually impairs your immunity. You get on antibodies, those antibodies are attacking parts of your immune system. The proteins are in my April 2020 paper. And, and, and then, because of that immune suppression by the vaccine, the virus has a, has a heyday. So that's original antigenic sin, autoimmunity, antibody-dependent disease enhancement. We're seeing it. There's no way around it. It's coming. And, um, you know, a lot of people I know and love are vaccinated and I'm scared for them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, and that's the case. I mean, certainly in this country, public health would like us to believe that 85% of the population uh, or the, the potential population has been vaccinated. Uh, again, the, the bastard son of Castro had a Twitter uh, remark uh, this week, Monday or Tuesday, um, where he was saying that uh, the, the vaccine doses for the tw- five to 12 year olds have arrived and, you know, please deliver your children for their, uh, for their shot, which, you know, again, it's, it, there's no data to show that that provides any benefit. And certainly that age cohort doesn't suffer from COVID. Uh, and we know that the, the vaccines don't prevent you from transmitting it. Uh, so, you know, what is going on here? I mean, it's... it's did you know, you know the, speaking of children, did you know that in the United States of America, the number of trips to the doctor for vaccination is high enough that the number of kids that will die in car-related, car vehicle, vehicle uh, car crashes is higher than those that have died from COVID mm. on the way to the doctor. This is just using national statistics. And I got a question about this Trudeau fellow of yours. All right. Why does he have Canadians believing that global warming is a bad thing for them? I've, you know, I grew up in St. Lawrence County 
and I and I used to uh, wear sandals with socks because it's cold up there. Why is global warming a bad thing for Canada? Why does this is how complete the the misinformation is the boon in agriculture that you would see the absolute boon in tourism with all the lakes that you have that you have an extra month on either end of the summer for people to come you know do their thing there what well the so heck is- I, I think first off you know I've, I've communicated with every real world expert on this subject all, all the greatest physicists of our time uh co2 cannot Effect temperature. That that's simply a, a misnomer. Um, the the greatest greenhouse gas is water vapor, which is, is very difficult to tax and control. Uh, this is one hundred percent a tax and control modality. Um, you know the the real science is showing that the total solar irradiance is declining, and we're probably actually going into a period of uh, a grand solar minimum, um, which is much more deleterious to human survival. And when we look in, when we look historically, we had these periods which were called climate optimas, the Roman warming period, the medieval warm period. These were times where people flourished. Whenever the climate cooled, which was, you know, the result, the, the Justinian plague was a result of famine, crop failure, uh, the, 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 the elevational range at which crops could be grown uh, came down to the valleys, you know, there. And, and so it's interesting, you know, this is a narrative which has been uh, pitch since 1990 and the whole sustainability movement. And, you know, the question, why is is uh, the Trudeau administration uh, so adamant in pushing this? And I think the, the simple answer is because they're all Klaus Schwab sycophants and whatever Klaus says they do. And, you know, the, the pathway to the Great Reset is through fear and pandemonium. And if, if they can make everyone believe that the planet's going to burn, um, uh, you know, then, you know, and we just had this, uh, we, we typically up until this year, we called it a pineapple express. So the, the Japanese current in the Pacific uh, pushes the warm tropical air and, you know, that we have a, um, a disparate uh, temperature regime between what's happening in, in the you know, Tropic of Cancer. We get a big weather pattern that hits the coast. We call it a Pineapple Express forever. Well, we, the, the uh, Environment Canada has now called this an atmospheric river uh, with 120 or 140 millimeters of rain, which is not an unusual amount of rain. However, since September of this year, we've been accumulating high elevation snow because we are cooling. So now we have three to four feet of snow above 5,000 feet. We get this massive Pineapple Express. Well, what do you think is going to happen? You now have a volume of water, which is greater than it should be. And together with our clear-cut logging practices, which have caused drier, hotter microclimates, which now when you amass 30, 40, 50% of a geographic region into these areas, you have affected climate. You know, it's not from CO2, but there is a, there is an adjustment. There's a localized adjustment. And so also a clear-cut accumulates snow greater than a forest does. And so we have all these all these factors which are really an ecological factor uh and now we have massive volumes of water which have been discharged uh and i don't you know again you're probably maybe too far east to have heard the stories but you know uh, the coast of the west coast of vancouver uh which the west coast of canada is now completely detached from the rest of canada from rail and road um, now, is this climate change or is, are these outdated infrastructure that were built in the 50s to a 200-year culvert plan? Maybe this was a 500-year event. Well, you know, your culverts are blown out. Your infrastructure is blown out. It has nothing to do with CO2. Um, it has everything to do with uh, poor construction practices and a very typical pattern of rainfall uh, together with a cooling climate. 
So you're very well you're very well informed in that. My master's thesis was in paleoclimatology. I would, yeah, very good. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, I discovered a regional synchronous climate change that had a cycle of about 800 years, and it fit right with the Younger Dryas. It was, it was this was in neotropical South America. Okay. So, uh, for all the sites that we had pollen records throughout the lake lake sediment records throughout, and. Um, yeah, so yes, there's the Milankovitch cycle where the earth wobbles on its axis, and then there's the El Nino Southern Oscillation, and that probably feeds your Pineapple Express and so on. There's variation, you know, capitalizing on variation uh, to induce fear uh, is a general trend among these actors, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, we have yeah. variation from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, decade to decade, and so on um, in, in climate. Um, but in part, the reason why I asked the question the way I asked it was to be funny, but I laughed harder when I asked it off beforehand. Why is Pierre Trudeau? How? Seriously now, sociologically, it's a psychological question, not a scientific question. How does he have them convinced that global warming is necessarily bad geographically for Canadians? When my understanding is that there could be a, 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 an economic boom for certain regions of the world, if global warming would occur. And so that's a rhetorical question. The point is you answered it with Klaus Schwab, who reminds me of somebody from a Mork and Mindy episode. It's like, you know, Dr. Evil, Dr. Evil goes meets Mork and Mindy. Um, if, if this guy has anything to do with my future, I'm going to be very upset. I don't think, uh, I don't think he belongs on my landscape. No, I, I would agree. I mean, he's. Uh, I, I would say that he's actually more like a Bond villain than uh, than than a sitcom character. Uh, he he is a very scary man. Uh, his mother is a Rothschild. Uh, you know, he founded the World Economic Forum when he was thirty three, which is you know some forty nine years ago. Uh, so he's a very very strange character, uh, and I think you're giving too much credit to uh, uh, Mr. Dress Up. Uh, you know, the, the, he is simply a gear in an engine that has been underway. Uh, for some time, and unfortunately, the the under thirty, under thirty five crowd in this country uh, has heard this mantra of climate change, global warming. You know, yeah. throughout their entire education career, uh, which you know is, if again, when we sort of t talk about the communist underpinnings, uh, the the prophetic warning of Yuri Bezmenov back in nineteen eighty three with his famous interview. Uh, you know, this has all come to pass. You know, education has been subverted um, with this nonsense, and you know, I. I can't even have a conversation with a you know a young twenties person on the subject because they 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 literally they just simply just shout me down, which is uh, you know as, as Willie soon Dr. Willie soon likes to say. I mean that is the, the there are, there's no debating it's shouting down. And, and again you know we're seeing uh, I had a, a bit of a, a monologue some time ago uh, earlier this year about you know the twin pillars of co of climate change and COVID and how they're you know these are being used to usher in communism. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting to note that all these eminent physicists, uh, as, you know, as well as research scientists like yourself, all see these, uh, these pairings between, you know, the poor data analysis, the poor modeling, 
between climate change and COVID and the threat of communism. And unfortunately, you know, we are, at least in this country, we are an absolute fringe minority. And I, and I you know, in America, I think you're a bit more balanced and, you know, it might be 50-50 or 60-40 in terms of people that, uh, you know, are drinking the Kool-Aid and have no subjective reasoning capability and those that are, you know, actually still aware of their surroundings and can interpret data. Um, and, you know, I've said before that, you know, we're, this isn't a, this isn't, as much a viral pandemic as it is a pandemic of a lack of science, math, and history education. Because in the absence what? of those, yeah, in the absence of those, what do you have? You're, you, we have the exact situation that we're in. So I'm glad you brought that up because now I get to plug my online university, IPAC-EDU. Yes, please do. All right. So so uh, we're four semesters into IPAC-EDU and we're teaching the fundamentals of science, logic, and reason. We're teaching biology courses for bio one and bio two, we're teaching genetics, uh, biology of nutrition. I'm doing, this brings us back to the climate change thing. But, you know, other than controlling the minds of the masses and using them that way, I'm an environmental biologist, okay? I, I'm an environmentalist, I should say. And it really bothers me that 99% of you talk with anyone or hear anything in the media about environmentalism or the environment, it's about climate change. It's not about the toxins. The corporate, the corporations that are pumping these toxins that cause and contribute to autism, that contribute to autoimmunity, that co contribute to uh, heart disease and, and gender bending and all the rest. So um, endocrine disruptors. What, I, what I'd like to say is, is that this online university is designed for people that want a college education, but don't care if they get a degree. So mm -hmm. this is non-degree certificate you can come and we have a, a instructor that's teaching the history of law in the West. So we have law courses, uh, we have uh, uh, philosophy courses, we have um, analytic courses. So I teach spreadsheets one and I just hired an instructor to teach applied biostatistics so you can learn how to analyze public data and do, do your own hypothesis testing. And um, I teach a course how to read and interpret a scientific study because the goal of IPEC-EDU is to empower the public to be better able to participate in public discourse, knowing that they stand firm on real science, real logic, and real reason, not this other stuff. So uh, the courses are priced, so it's like 40 bucks a month if you want to take a course for four months. Um, and they're live. We meet in a Zoom mm -hmm. call. We give the lectures, and then we have question and answer sessions. There's no required books. There's no tests or exams. They're just, you know, we work towards understanding and we don't we don't dole it out a little at a time we give you the entire enchilada on the topic so next semester I'm, this semester i'm teaching environmental toxicology next semester i'm teaching immunology dr jessica rose who's done a fantastic job this past year with two peer-reviewed studies showing that the VARES data actually show signals of record deaths from COVID 19. she wants to teach of course in virology we have doctors coming on board to teach health and wellness courses, like uh, Dr. Um, David Brownstein. He's going to teach uh, <laughs> approaches to health and wellness. Paul Thomas will be coming in and teaching, of course, in pediatric health and wellness. Um, so we, we want to revolutionize public education. And we've, we've reached for that. We've achieved it. It's an LLC. It's a for-profit cor or corporation. It's, it's not related to IPAC. The, the not-for-profit research organization, um, and we're growing exponentially. That's the good news. We have so many new students and so many new instructors, and the courses are all excellent. 
Uh, Michael Gaeta is one of our instructors. He teaches uh, next next semester. He's teaching a course on herbology and human wellness. So we're going to get into herbalism um, and teach everybody the herbs that are that are helpful. Um, and uh, we have we have students from Canada. So I'm proud to say we already have our first Canadian students. So you're all very welcome. The, the uh, website for that is ipac-edu.org. Uh, ipac-edu.org, and um, yeah, I'm very proud of this. It's the it's the most significant decision I've made with my career to create this online university. Excellent, excellent. And where else uh, would I direct listeners to learn more about uh, you and your work? Sure. So I've mentioned popular rationalism about five times now, but popular rationalism is my new publication outlet. It's a newsletter. I write an article a day minimum. I get up at five thirty in the morning and I start writing, uh, a, so I can hit two or three articles some days by nine o'clock, um, and and they're all topical uh, and current. Uh, that's one place. Uh, if you like the research that we do at IPAC, you can do you can go to ipaknowledge.org. Uh, and if you want to uh, help Vaccine Choice Canada fund Jessica Rose, you can find the um, Joshua Kuntz, uh, you know, the IPAC uh, Joshua Kuntz uh, Research Fellowship that we're funding Jessica to do her important research with right now. It's just a small monthly donation. Don't don't give till it hurts. We don't want anybody to, you know, put yourself out at all. And even if you can only do it for a little while, every little bit helps. Um, and and you know the people of Canada have been very generous in supporting Jessica to date. Uh, we're 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 not quite where we want would like to be to give her as much support as she certainly deserves given her impact. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, you can basically find me everywhere. I've decided I'm not going to choose a single channel. We're everywhere. You know, I have a podcast called Unbreaking Science. You can go to YouTube and look up WWDNYK, and you can go to. Um, find my my uh, a lot of our older articles at jameslionsweiler.com um, there's uh, a ton there there's about 140 articles there that you could read so that I started writing in 2015 so um, but yeah thank you yeah that's excellent I'll uh, get those into the show notes uh, do you have a lot of uh, uh, people that are uh, quite passionate about research instead of doing some uh, further investigation on, on, uh, guests. And certainly, I mean, I've been enjoying the popular rationalism articles. Uh, there, there's sometimes I don't get uh, caught up for a few days cause they do pour into the inbox uh, quite regularly. Uh, but they are, they're, they're generally short form and provocative and informative. And I would, uh, I'd recommend everyone to sign up and, uh, get, uh, get that information. Cause it certainly, certainly keeps you abreast, uh, as to the latest information, uh, that you're able to produce. Uh, so, Dr. Lineswiler, I really appreciate you and your work. Um, it's been a great opportunity here to chat with you, and I uh, hope we have the opportunity uh, again in the future as uh, some more of this comes to pass. And um, uh, I guess one other, if, if you haven't come across Yeon Mi Park, um, do, you, do you recognize that name? She's the North Korean defector. Mm. Uh, so, Y-E-O-N... Uh, M I. Uh, she's written a couple books now. Uh, public speaker uh, on the the horrors of communism. Uh, I would recommend that you uh, uh, take a moment. Uh, she she's appeared on uh, Patrick Beck David's show a couple times. So it was a really yes, I, I do recall, and I remember her saying that what woke her up. I, I I saw one of her interviews. What woke her up was watching the Titanic. Is that the one? She she watched the Titanic and she realized you don't just have to die for the state; you can die for love. 
Yes, yes. And, and of course, there's many other things in that interview, you know, like when she came to America, you know, and her friend, uh, her host was taking her shopping and she's like, you know, looking at the selection of jeans and there's 50 different, she's like, you know, there's only one pair of pants I can buy in North Korea. It's like, you know, we'll go and try them on, see what you like. It's like, I don't know what I like. And so it's very, very interesting. One And one of her great statements is, you know, to to all these people who want socialism to come to America, get on a plane, go to the socialist paradise of North Korea and enjoy yourself. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, you know, those very, very informative words. And, and, um, you know, let's, let's, let's keep up uh, the good work here to uh, prevent our great nations from becoming uh, communist hell holes. Uh, Cause you know, there, there is only one uh, outcome with communism and that's uh, suffering. Um, slavery and suffering. You become an agent of the state and nothing else. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and uh, it was timely. I think I had a lot on my chest. I want to get off. So thank you. That's great. Excellent, sir. You have yourself a great day and I uh, look forward to chatting with you in the future. Right on. Let's do it again. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.